It's an odd thing, though, to release a bunch of the kids. Uh, since this morning, we are in Mark chapter 10, and we are going to be looking, uh, as we look at this, uh, continue our series, Encounters with Jesus. This morning, we're looking at uh, what happens when little children encounter Jesus. Um, and so, it's an odd thing that we just sent the little children out. Um, but I'm trusting that you parents will pass on the information. And actually, as you'll find, uh, that much of what Jesus says to the little children is for the purpose of adults to hear. Mark chapter 10, verses 13 through 16, is we're going to be in God's Word this morning. If you want to turn your Bible there. If you don't have a Bible, it'll be up on the screen for you. I'm going to read out loud. Follow along with me as I, as I read out loud. Hear God's Word. And they were bringing children to him. That's their parents. That's the they. And they were bringing children to him, Jesus, that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant. And he said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them, the children, in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. This ends the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. May the grass wither and the flower fade, but may the word of our God, may it stand forever. All right, so imagine with me that you are a little child again. Now, I know for some of you, that's like, you know, trying to imagine the Battle of Gettysburg. It's so long ago, all right? But imagine, try to kind of put yourself in that place, right, that you are a little child. Indulge me here for a second. And actually, maybe this would be helpful. We all have a, a well, uh, most of us, I would think, the vast majority of us have a childhood picture that we remember. A picture of ourselves, maybe you're wearing that particular dress, or it was the, that particular baseball game you went to. You, there's a picture of yourself that you remember. I want you to think about that child. That, that version of you. Here's a, here's my, a picture of me, uh, when I, when I, what I was thinking of this week. And the only reason actually I put this picture up is the only picture on, on Facebook, on my parents' Facebook that I could find of myself. Uh, mind you, if I were to search Facebook for just by, by names of one of my children, you'd have like a whole portfolio just under the name of like Lila. And it would just give me hundreds and hundreds of pictures. But this is the only one of myself that I could find. But, um, but there's a picture of me. And so... Imagine yourself at some age like this, a little kid, and if you were a little child, if that little child were to experience, to encounter Jesus, to come face to face with Jesus, and to experience him embracing them and speaking to them, what would you discover about yourself? What would an encounter of Jesus tell you about yourself as a little child? Well, this little passage tells us three things that we would, I think we can discover about ourselves and about little children. The first thing is this, is children who encounter Jesus discover that they are valued, that they are valued. Now, what's going on here is the, the parents of these children are bringing their children to Jesus to have him bless them. This is actually an Old Testament pattern. You might recall this, that like, for example, in Jacob and Esau, Jacob goes and steals his brother's 
blessings in which he walks into his father's uh, deathbed room and he asks for his father's blessing. And his father does what? He lays his hand on him and gives him and extends to him a blessing, a benediction. And that is what, that is what these parents are wanting Jesus to do here, to put, lay his hands on them and to benedict their children. And yet what's going on? What are the disciples doing? The disciples are hindering these children. They believe that Jesus is about the serious business of adulthood, that Jesus is a, an important political figure, that he is a rabbi and teacher, and therefore he cannot be bothered with these children. And this behavior by the disciples is actually the norm for the ancient Near Eastern culture. Children in much of the ancient world were not considered as valuable. And if you think about it, there would almost be a psychological reason why you couldn't put, you wouldn't want your heart to be cling to children too much. In a world in which such a vast proportion of them would die in infancy, or they were simply a mouth to feed for long periods of time in which you would live a hard scrabble life of simply just trying to feed a few people, children didn't have value until they could actually produce something in the world, until they could go and help in the fields. And so for what we see in much of the ancient world, in the pagan world, there is example after example of how little children are valued. And there's a great uh, archaeological dig in the area called Megiddo. And there's a place there in which in Megiddo there were the sacrifices to a god named Molech. And if you know anything about the sacrifices that were made to Molech, that Molech, particularly in those pagan sacrifices, desired for children to be sacrificed in front of him. And so for over many, many years, tens of thousands of children were sacrificed at the altar of Molech. And in this archaeological dig, thousands of years after this practice had even, had even happened, they were still digging up the small bones of children. Herod, when Jesus comes into the world, what we find in the early parts of the Gospels, when Herod, when he even senses that there's a potential threat and he hears about this potential Messiah of Israel, Jesus. What does he have happen? All the boys, three and under, are to be slaughtered in Judea. Egypt, the same thing in ancient Egypt. You remember this. That the Israelite children were to be slaughtered. In fact, we actually have a letter by a man named Hilarion from the year 1 B.C., where he tells his pregnant wife while he is away, he's a soldier, and his wife is about to give birth. And he tells her this. If it is a boy, then we will rejoice. If it is a girl then we will cast her away. Because even, even in a world where children were not valued, female children in particular were not valued. And would our culture, our culture has a very bizarre divide when it comes to our kids. Either we idolatrize them, they are idols in our life, or they are a nuisance and therefore to be rid of. But fathers in the ancient world and fathers even now, it seems, have the right to execute their children. But what Jesus responds when the disciples block these children from coming to see him, what is his response to them? The Gospel of Mark uses a particular Greek word here in which it is translated indignation. It is the only time in the Gospel in which it is used. And it is the strongest possible language for anger. It would be to say that Jesus is viscerally furious at the disciples for keeping these children from him. You see, the things that we get most angry about and that we are most desirous of defending 
Those are often the things that we value the most. And Jesus keeps some of his most poignant, sharp words for his disciples and for the world around him when it comes to his value for children and the lack of value that others put upon children. In fact, in Matthew 18, what does Jesus say there? He says, if anyone would dare harm these little ones of mine, it would be better to have a millstone hung around their neck. You know what a millstone is? You cannot think of a more large rock hung around your neck and thrown into the ocean. And so he rebukes the disciples and says, bring me the children. Let me have the children. Jesus looks at children as valuable and as precious in his sight. And so if you're a child in here, if you're a child in this room, understand that this is how God the Father views you. That he looks at you as precious in his sight. That yes, while you were weak and while you were small, that while you can't do math very well and while you don't produce an income, And while sometimes you feel like people and adults in your life simply are frustrated with you, God the Father who formed you and made you looks upon you and says, you are precious in my sights. Philip Yancey tells the story of flying out to see his mother. And it was a time in which he, Philip Yancey is a well-known pastor and writer in the evangelical world, but he flew out to see his mother during Mother's Day weekend one year. And they were going through old family uh, pictures and he sees, sees this old picture of himself when he was a very little boy. And this picture is not well taken care of. It is crumpled. And it's clearly been crushed many times. It seems to almost be deformed from like some sort of water. And yet it holds a prominent place in this family album. And he asks his mother about this picture. He goes, what's the deal with this, with this picture? And she reminds him, she says, remember that your father, his father had died when he was just a little boy. And his father had died of polio in the early 1950s, at a time in which we had almost no, our treatment for polio was still at the very early stages. And his father had been in an iron lung for the last couple of years of his life. And at that, point, at that point, the hospital would not let any children, particularly around patients who had polio, And so this father was not able to see his son for the last couple years of his life while he wilted away inside that iron lung. And she said, but this is the picture that during those last months of your father's life that he held on to. That day in and day out, the thing that he would look to and that he valued most was looking at your face. Phil Bianchi said that this was a complete game changer for him. Because here is a father who he has no memory of, no recollection, and yet in that picture and that knowledge of his father looking at him over and over and over again, he sees how much his father valued him. Jesus is picking up the Old Testament perspective that children are a blessing from the Lord, that they are valued in his sight. And it is from this moment on That when Jesus comes into the world and he says, children, bring them to me. Children are precious. Children are valuable. That the world begins to change its perspective about children. Abortion was rare in the ancient world because it was such a dangerous practice for the mother. But what was not rare in the ancient world was infanticide. In which if you could not abort a child, you would remove, get rid of a child by simply throwing it out into the trash heap. 
or, but sometimes the practice was to take it out to the woods and just leave it into the natural wilds for animals to destroy the, destroy the child. And yet, what was the practice of the early church? Following Jesus' value of little children, the church would go down to the rocks by the sea where they would leave children. They'd go to the trash heaps and they'd go into the woods and they would find these abandoned children and bring them into their homes and raise them as image bearers, as beloved children of God. This is what God's people do, following our Savior, showing that we delight and we value little ones. And so my desire for you children in this room this morning is that you would have an encounter with the real Jesus. That you would know and have an encounter with the real Jesus because deep down, you would walk away from that experience knowing that the knowledge at the depth of your soul, that he looks upon you with value, that he is the lover of your soul, and that you are precious in his sight. An encounter of Jesus tells children that they are valuable. Second, Children who encounter Jesus discover that they are exemplary. And that word doesn't make sense to you, that they're a model. That they're a model. The disciples rebuke the parents for bringing children, and Jesus gets mad at them. And then Jesus says this in verses 14 and 15. For to such as these belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Now what is Jesus saying here? Is Jesus saying that children, because they're cute and innocent and have dimply cheeks, that that's how you get into the kingdom of God? Is it their innocence? No. Spend two seconds with any child will realize that they are very cute, but not very innocent. He is saying that the kingdom, though, belongs to such, such as these. And so what is it that Jesus is looking to about children and saying, this is the model this is what is exemplary about children that makes them fit to be in the kingdom of God. And here's what I believe the answer is. It is because children are utterly dependent. Children are exemplary for their utter dependency. For their utter dependency. Children are small. They are weak. They are helpless. And in fact, Jesus actually says here, it's the, he's spiritually speaking about little children. The parents are having to carry their children to see Jesus. They are utterly passive in this. In this scene, they are utterly dependent. And the kingdom of God, is what Jesus is saying, is to those who know that they are weak, that they are helpless, and ultimately that they must depend on Jesus fully and wholly and completely. I love it. Warren Wearsby, who's an evangelical author, says this, we tell children to behave like adults But Jesus here is telling the adults to model themselves after the children. That we would become dependent again. Now just to to be clear, I also want to ground this in what's going on contextually in Mark chapter 10. It is not simply what Jesus says here to the children. There's there's actually a reason that I point to the dependency here. That this story, this little four-verse story about children is bracketed by two other accounts. The account right before this is Jesus has an interaction with Pharisees who are very angry at Jesus for healing a a paralyzed man on the Sabbath. And in the passage right after this is the well-known passage of the rich young ruler. On both sides, we have the powerful and the self-reliant and the self-righteous 
that bracket this little story. And then in the middle is this four first section where Jesus points to the model and the exemplary nature of children who are utterly dependent. Here is the message that Mark chapter 10 is giving, that children are the rebuke to the Pharisees and the rebuke to the rich young ruler. That if you are going to enter the kingdom of God, that both of these parties must become like little children. The childlike dependency of children is meant to be an eye-opening mirror to reveal to us adults who have become so self-reliant and self-dependent and self-righteous. It is saying and saying, look, this is actually your truest nature. That you are deep down before God, you are truly like this child. That we are as dependent on God as a child is to a parent for their livelihood. Do you ever actually, in all factuality, grow out of dependence on God? Are you more or less dependent on God than you were when you were three years old? He he is still the one who has to give you the air that you breathe. He is still the one who provides for you, who gives you care, who gives you protection. He is still the one who is the reason why you didn't get in a car accident on the way here. The only thing that changes for us as we grow older is the veneer and the lie of our own self-dependency. But in reality, we are actually as dependent as a three-year-old child, as a little babe at its mother's chest. Now, the rebuke gets very serious in verse 15, doesn't it? In verse 15, it says this, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Jesus says, I'm serious about this children illustration thing. This is not some endearing little illustrative point. If you don't approach the kingdom of God with a dependency upon Christ like a child is dependent upon a parent, then you cannot then you will miss out on entrance into the kingdom of God. Or to put it positively, the only way for you to enter into the kingdom of God is to enter in utter dependency like a child. Now, what does that mean for us? Well, I have bad news and I have good news. Here's the bad news. The bad news is what this means is you're going to have to renounce all that is natural to your adult tendencies of self-dependency. Christian salvation is the undoing of worldly maturity. The world trains us to be cynics, but we are to be a people of faith. The world trains us to be in the ways of despondency, but we are to be a people of joy. The world trains us to be self-reliant and strong, but we are to be a people of childlike dependence before God. This will take a lifelong journey for you to relearn dependency. That Christians are actually supposed to become like the Benjamin Button of the world. That we are to go from old to young in our walk with Jesus. Becoming more dependent the older we get and the more we walk with him. But here's the good news. Aren't you glad that Jesus uses children as the model kingdom citizen? How depressing would it be if he, if one of the, he had chosen one of the other options? If Jesus had said, wouldn't you have preferred, would you have preferred that Jesus chooses the Pharisees or the rich young ruler to be the the model for entering into the kingdom of God? Could you imagine having to emulate the Pharisees with their rigidity and their zeal? They had to memorize every word of the Torah. Have you done that? 
What if he had said, let the rich young ruler come to me, for such belongs to the kingdom of God? Can you imagine the pressure to become powerful and wealthy? And what does the rich young ruler say about his life? Jesus asked him, have you kept the law? And he says, every single bit of it. Have you kept every single bit of the law? And what if he had said, let the scribes come to me, for such belongs the kingdom of God. Can you imagine the pressure to learn and to build up your intelligence in order to be, in order to be worthy of being welcome in the kingdom of God? It is actually in owning your childlike estate that you are made ready to enter God's kingdom. Don't be fooled by your accumulation of power and money and possessions and forming a life that looks really mature and it looks really self-dependent, but is actually has rotted in the inside. There is no room, literally there is no room in the kingdom for those who believe they have no need for the kingdom. There's no room for those who do not believe that they need the kingdom of God and that they need the king in order to get into the kingdom. North Americans, we are allergic to helplessness. We be, this is why the whole bottom part of my monthly budget has the word insurance on it. Insurance for this and insurance for that, insurance for the cat, insurance for the child. I have insurance for everything. There, but North, we, are so, we are so allergic to helplessness. So not having something that can get us out of, that can keep the illusion of our own self-dependency. We are allergic to helplessness. That's why we back our lives up in all of these ways. And so we try to get open doors to our own abilities. But unless you, utter, you realize your utter helplessness, you can't get into the kingdom of God. It is to the helpless and to the weary, to the desperate and shameful, to the sinful and the mournful. Right? Go back and read Matthew chapter 5 in the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Blessed are those who mourn. These are the people who get into the kingdom of God. So, children are exemplary because they show us what we are supposed to be like, even as adults. Dependent. So kids, to the degree that you live with a trusting dependence on the Lord, you are an example to every adult who's in this room. In which you accept Jesus with an arms open wide pattern that the cynical parents around you struggle, struggle to accept Jesus with. One last thing. Children who encounter Jesus discover that they are blessed. What's the last verse? Verse 16 says this, he took them in his arms and he blessed them laying his hands on them. What happens when they bring the babies to Jesus? The passage ends with Jesus embracing them and blessing them, benedicting them. Literally, he picked up children this is not the staid pastor who spends 45 hours a week in his office studying. He is not a distant God who cannot be, you cannot approach. What a picture of incredible grace, of who we actually are. He must lift us up and carry us along like a father carries along an infant. He is a tender and affectionate to those who bring nothing to him but their dependency. This is why Jesus came to seek and save the lost. This is why he came. The, whole, the reason why Jesus is indignant is not just because he values children so much, but the very core of why Jesus in this gospel project of sending the Son of God is to seek and save sinners, the weak and the little, and to draw little children to himself. The incarnation, the life and the ministry of Jesus, the death and resurrection of Jesus is a divine monumental effort to draw back to himself 
children so that he gets to delight in blessing them. Kids, your parents love to bless you. They love to bless you. You may like to, you may like to think that our favorite word is no. That's not our favorite word. My wife, I come home every once in a while and I'll be like, why are the kids doing this? And she's like, I literally got tired of saying no. I had to say yes at some point because that is actually the longing of our heart as parents. We have lots of fathers and mothers in this room of children. And we have lots of grandparents of little children in this room. And don't you know the experience, parents and grandparents, the physical experience, just wanting to express your love to your child or your grandchild? I was reading to chapel, uh, my youngest, the other night, and we were reading, and she had done, as she often does at bedtime, she, did, she said or did something that was really funny, and I looked at her, and I said, I'm so happy to be your daddy. And chapel likes to ask fairly direct questions, so she said, Daddy, why do you say that so much? And how am I supposed to respond? What do you say as a parent? I just simply said, because it's true, because I am so happy being your daddy. The only thing I can turn to is simply to repeat the case. I love being your father. And if me, as Jesus says in other places, if me being evil says such things to my daughter, how much more so your father in heaven, how does he feel about you? There was a pastor I heard about in our denomination who was um, expressing um, and as I heard his story, he was expressing just how torn up he was over his teenage daughter. She was a 15-year-old, and her life was very rapidly becoming a wreck. She was running around out into all hours of the night. He couldn't rein her in, no matter, no matter of how much affection and discipline. She would sometimes not come home at all. It was evident that she was sleeping around, that she was throwing herself into the arms of those who would not care for her. She was lying, and she was deceiving her parents, and then, of course, she was then blaming them out of her anger and her bitterness. And this pastor said, I remember standing in front of the plate glass window, staring out in the darkness one night, waiting for her to come home, and I felt rage. I was angry at my daughter for the way that she was manipulating us and twisting the knife of her sin to hurt us. And yet, and yet, when my daughter came home that night, or rather very early the next morning, I wanted nothing, I wanted nothing so much in this world than to take her in my arms, to tell her I love her, and to tell her that I wanted what was best for her. I was a love-sick father. That is the heart of your God for you. That his longing is to express to you his love and the blessings that he has for you. You say, well, that's a stretch to describe God as a lovesick father. Doesn't that put him in a fairly needy place? But isn't that what is described in the parable of the prodigal son? That the father is looking out for his child. But even more than a parable, I know that it is the heart of God because of the cost that he is willing to pay to bring children back who have wandered from him, to bring them back into his, into, in his fold so that he might bless them for all of eternity. You see, Jesus, the Son of God, became like a child. He went into the womb and became little and small. And he took on flesh and was born as a baby and lived in submission, not only to his earthly parents, but even more so to his heavenly Father. Jesus became utterly dependent on God the Father. In John chapter 5, it says, it describes it this way. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can, son can do nothing of his own accord, 
but what he sees the Father doing. In verse 30, I can do nothing of my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. He became dependent on the Father. That's why he went and spent hours and nights with the Father out in the wilderness praying, because what does he need more than anything else? He needs the Father. And yet, and yet, at the moment of his most utter dependency on the Father, when he cries out on the cross, what does he get? Silence and forsakenness. The Father is silent. There is no word of benediction and blessing at the cross like Jesus had gotten at his baptism. And why does Jesus do this? Because God, his Father, had children who had rebelled and they had run from home. And his little children who he loved, that he was going to go to the ends of the earth, children who have discovered that life is hell apart from God the Father. And he wants to bring them home. And he wants to, as the prodigal father does, what what does he do? When, When the son comes home, what is the reaction of the father? Exactly like Jesus' interactions with the little children. He embraces him. He sets a ring upon him. He kisses him. He blesses him. The cost that the father is willing to pay reveals the value of his children. First Peter says that you are not redeemed with gold and silver, but with the precious blood of the Lamb of God. How much the father must value you to pay such a high cost, just so he might spend all of eternity lavishing his blessings upon you. That's the end of our textual look. Let me just give you two, let me ask this question. How, how would you know that you've begun to encounter Jesus like a child again? And here I'm going to do just some pastoral wisdom and prognosticating. But here's, here are two signs that I think that you've become somebody who is beginning to live and realizing your dependency upon Jesus. One is that you increase in expectancy. You increase in expectancy. And here I'm picking up on the motif of childlikeness again. My children have no problem asking for anything of me. In fact, my children expect to be loved. They're sure of it. You ever walk a four, watch a four-year-old walk in? They can walk in with mud all over their face, half their clothes off their body, and they expect everybody in the room to be really impressed with them. When's the last time you did that? Children expect to be loved. They're positive that everyone will find everything that they say completely interesting. And somebody asks you this, do you, walk, do you go to Jesus with this kind of assurance and acceptance and expectancy such that when you pray, you have an expectation that he's going to hear you? I was sitting with a group of folks yesterday. We were doing a day of prayer. And one, of our, one of our elders was, was expressing this. One of the things that we were confessing at this one point was that when we pray, we don't expect Jesus to answer our prayers. And it, it, this, this elder and I were actually confessing that in one of the things that I think what we do is we will pray things, but we actually, deep down, we have this cynical part of us. He's really not actually going to give me what I ask for. And yet, how do little children... I, I took my day off. I took... Friday off this week, and, and so I was, you know, so here's the scene. I'm in, in the kitchen. It's a lazy morning. I've got the pajama pants on and the t-shirt, and my hair is all disheveled, and my, my kids have already had one breakfast, and then my two boys walk in. It's around 9.30 or 10 o'clock, and the requests just start flying, and it's like, hey, can I have eggs? Sure, I'll make you some eggs. 
Okay, um, hey, while you're doing that, can you play basketball with me? Okay, I'll play basketball with you in a second. Oh, the other kid, hey, I want bacon with my eggs. Great, I'll make you bacon with the eggs. Oh, but I want it not scrambled. I want it like an omelet. And it kept going and going and going. I finally looked at Mary and I was like, who, who do they think I am? Their own personal chef? The audacity, the expectation of children that you actually, this, this is the illustration that God gives us in prayer, that he is like a father who would give you good things. And so if me being evil would give his children bacon with their eggs, how much more? Second, second, I'm going to spend just a little bit longer on this one. You increase in joy. And I am, and I, I love what John Piper says, the way he describes that you were you made for joy. But he actually says that this is dangerous business. The dangerous duty of delighting in God. One of the blessings of dependency is when you come, is that you begin to increase in joy in your life. That you see a little kid, I mean, think about this. You ever been to Disney World with one of your, your children? This is before they get cynical, like six or seven. But when they're like three years old, and they meet a character at Disney, you know what's a, what happens to that child? their body begins to shake and quiver. And then they maybe they jump upside down or they, they're so excited they can't even speak. Why? Because that child actually believes they are meeting the real Mickey, Minnie Mouse and the real Elsa. When, when that, there's something about childlikeness, they become unglued. You were made for this kind of joy. And might I say it this way, this, we don't like to use this word. We prefer the Bible word joy, but I'm gonna use this word. You were made to be happy. You are supposed to be happy. In your deepest design as an image bearer of God, you were made for happiness. And I, I can't tell you how much I long for this in my own life. Because the older I've gotten, the more cynical and pessimistic and hard and curmudgeon-y I have become. My daughter was playing with my hand the other day, and she felt a callus on my hand. She said, what is that? I said, it's a callus. And she said, why do you have that? What is that for? I was like, it's, it's because it gets rubbed so much. It's in order to keep my skin from ripping. And isn't that where your soul, how many of your souls have become? I had, we had a good friend who was with us right before New Year's, and, and this friend, they were about to leave, and the night before they left, this friend asked, how can I be praying for you? What, what would be your great desire this year, Andrew? And my response was this, is I want to laugh more. I want to laugh more. Because as we grow up in this brutal, sin-sick world, we are taught to be joy skeptics, aren't we? And we lose our childlikeness. We lose that what we once had, and we've come to believe that misery is the theme of our song. That I, and so I, bo- I actually bemoaned to my wife earlier this year that I used to belly laugh. Like, I mean, like, remember laughing as a kid where, like, your stomach aches? Where, like, it is the best ab workout you've ever had? But this childlikeness seems to be gone. And as I talk to you, and maybe this is just a more male characteristic, but as I spend time with men, this is the theme of their song. And it's actually the prayer request that they have over and over and over again, is I, I don't have any joy. But what if, what if the laughter of our kids is telling us a more true story than our cynicism and our seriousness? So how do you get that joy back? I mean, the world, the world really is sin-sick, so how in the world do we laugh in the face of a sin-sick, difficult world? We all understand this, that joy is circumstantial. Believe it or not, my children are not happy all the time, even and maybe sometimes especially at Disney World. 
And that you know what? The, the Bible does not deny the circumstantial nature of joy. It's something is always happening. There's always a circumstance that makes you happy. Just as Disney World is a circumstance that can make us happy. But the Bible's contention is this is there is a joyful circumstance that transcends all other circumstances. And that circumstance is this, the welcome hug of God. That your children can walk away from you and deny the Lord. And in that moment, what do you want? Going crying, pleading, in agony, what do you want? the welcome hug of your father. That even in there, in those moments, that you can experience joy in those circumstances, not because your finances are all great or the children are all okay, no, but because you have, you have the father. And even more specifically, the circumstance that Jesus, that we are happy with, is when you realize that his blessings are for you. When Jesus speaks of himself to his disciples, he is very honest in John 13 about the brutality of the world. But then he says this, I am a joy that can never be taken from you. And so kingdom of God logic is this, is if you have Jesus and yet nothing else, you can still be joyful. If you have everything else but not Jesus, you'll never be happy. And therefore, Adults, lay down all those things that you have besides Jesus, your self-dependency and your self-righteousness. And you come and say, oh, Father, in Jesus Christ, would you bless me again? He who has ears, let him hear. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, um, we talk, it is now... Um, it's now cool in the Christian world to talk about how broken we are and to lament how bad the world is and to talk about the difficult things and to not always have to put on a brave face. And, and so, Lord, I, I pray that you give us the ability to acknowledge the things that you acknowledge about this world. And yet, Lord, would you break in that we would not be known as a people who are just um, Debbie Downers, as if this is the spiritual high point that we can get to. But Lord, that we would be a people as, that we, as we recognize and move through the difficulties of this world, that we would be a people who discover that Jesus is better. That, that we would lay down the self-dependency of grinning and bearing it of just trying to muddle through by constantly complaining about it and saying that we're lamenters. But we would bring our lamenting truly to you and that you'd bring us to the place that where we truly throw ourselves at your feet in such a way, in such a way that we feel and experience the welcome hug of God the Father. And so that no matter the situation that we may find ourselves in, in this sick, sick world, that we would find joy in Jesus and his words over us. Would you make us like little children again, God? We pray this in your son's name. Amen.